I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on February 14th, 2022. Episode 55. The President of the United States is incapacitated. Now what? The 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution provides the following. And bear with me while I read it in its entirety. Section 1. In case of the removal of the president from office, or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Section 2. Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. Section 3. Whenever the president transmits to the president pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the Vice President as Acting President. Section 4. Whenever the Vice President and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the President pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the President is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the Vice President shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting President. Thereafter, when the President transmits to the President pro tem of the Senate Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the Vice President and a majority of either the principal officers of the Executive Department or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit within four days to the President pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the President is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue, assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session. If the Congress, within 21 days after receipt of the latter written declaration, or if Congress is not in session within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, determines by two-thirds vote of both houses that the President is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the Vice President shall continue to discharge the same as Acting President. Otherwise, the President shall resume the powers and duties of his office. 
This amendment, passed by Congress in 1965 and ratified by the states in 1967, occurred following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Though the original succession plan in the Constitution, found in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6, provided for the vice president to assume the role of president upon the president's inability to do so, it left some questions, including perhaps most notably for how long the vice president became acting president in the event of a president's inability to perform his duties, and who decided when a president was indeed unable to perform those duties of his office. Whether the 25th Amendment actually clarifies exactly what should happen in the event of presidential incapacity, or whether it merely creates different confusions, no doubt exists that especially in the light of serious recent questions about presidential mental competence, a plan is necessary for situations where a president is not killed or dies in office, but instead is clearly suffering from some condition that makes him unable to perform the very serious duties and obligations of the most powerful man in the world. What was clear prior to the 25th Amendment is that the precedent set by Vice President John Tyler in 1841, when he ascended to the presidency following the death of President William Henry Harrison, became the assumed result of the original succession language, that the vice president not only became acting president upon the death of a president, but he became president for the remaining presidential term. This situation is indeed what occurred upon the deaths of President Zachary Taylor, Abraham Lincoln, James Garfield, William McKinley, Warren Harding, Franklin Roosevelt, and John F. Kennedy. But what would or should happen in the event of some temporary inability of the president remained unknown and unclear. And though the country faced episodes of temporary presidential inability, including the 80 days President Garfield lived after being shot by his assassin, when President Woodrow Wilson suffered from a stroke and was not capable to perform the the duties of his office for some unknown length of time, when President Eisenhower had a heart attack and suffered from other medical incidents, it was the concerns of President Eisenhower himself that actually led to a less formal plan that did at least include an agreement between Eisenhower and his then-Vice President Nixon that the focus should be on stability and that the President should determine and declare his own inability, if able and if not able to do so, the Vice President should. And after consulta- consultation with others in the executive branch, if they deemed the president unable to perform his duties, the vice president would become acting president. This kind of informal agreement also included that once the president recovered from whatever was causing his inability, he could so declare and then take back over his role as president. Subsequent administrations after the Eisenhower administration followed this informal plan until the 25th Amendment formalized the legal requirements for the vice president to assume the role of acting president in the event of the president's inability to perform his duties. In some ways, the 25th Amendment merely solidified prior practice, and in others, it attempted to address issues left unanswered by history itself. Where a president's inability to fulfill his duties is expected to be temporary, the provisions in the 25th Amendment are clear. The vice president becomes acting president. The president is expected to resume his duties once the temporary disability ends. Even our first president, George Washington, encountered some medical issues that led him with a temporary disability and would have triggered this provision had it existed, when just a couple months into his first term, he underwent surgery to remove a tumor. And that medical issue was followed just a year or so later by a serious case of the flu that led him to pen the following. I have already had, within less than a year, two severe attacks, the last worse than the first. A third, more more than probable, will put me to sleep with my father's. At what distance this may be, I know not. With the era of our founding being no stranger to fatal disease, it is no wonder the Constitution provided for the vice president to replace the president in the case of death. 
But what of something less than death? The 25th Amendment not only attempts to clarify what happens when a president is suffering from some potentially temporary disability or a disability less than death, it also filled in the gap of what happened to the vacated office of vice president in the event a vice president did in fact become acting president. But what happens if the vice president also becomes incapacitated or dies after assuming the role of president? Or whether the newly named vice president is also incapacitated? The Constitution addresses only when the vice president becomes president, but does not address who may come after the vice president should that individual also suffer from death, disability, or some other inability to perform the duties of the office, such that the nation loses leadership in both offices simultaneously or near simultaneously. The Constitution left that, that more complete line of succession up to Congress. The granting of this authority to Congress was not the result of any failure of the founders to consider the need for further succession, rather just the opposite. Death was such a common part of life in the 17 and 1800s, giving Congress authority to determine who should be next in line was most true to the system of self-governance being instituted. And Congress has addressed this issue several times via, via legislative enactments. In 1792, Congress passed a law that placed the President pro tem of the Senate next in the line of succession after the President and Vice President. During debates over this law, proponents for making the Secretary of State the person who would follow the Vice President were essentially shot down. Not because in concept providing such authority to that cabinet member was opposed, but because the Federalist members of the Senate opposed the thought of then-Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, leader of the Anti-Federalists at that point, currently holding that office, to potentially be third in line. Opposition also existed to making the president pro tempore of the, Sen of the Senate the next to follow the vice president, out of fears that this individual could duly hold both offices, that of president and senator, thereby upsetting the carefully crafted separation of powers. Ultimately, a compromise related to the dual office question did result in the president pro tempore of the Senate being named the next in line, but not while also serving as a senator. Then again, in 1886, that law was changed to make the Secretary of State next in line after the Vice President. So you can see we're going back and forth a bit. In 1943, addition of the 20th Amendment to the Constitution at least made it clear that the Vice President did actually become President if the President-elect died or was unable to assume the office, or if the President-elect was not qualified by the time he was to assume it. But debates continued as to who would take the office of President should the Vice President be unable to do so. Then in 1947, the Speaker of the House, the President pro tempore, and then the Secretary of State, followed by other cabinet members, were all identified as the proper line of succession. And that's where we stand today. What is clear from all the changes over the years as to what order of succession Congress chooses in the event of death, disability, or inability of the President always seems to come down to a debate about whether Congress should give its own leadership that power or rest that power more firmly within the executive branch via the President's cabinet. History did uncover problems with how to deal with a president when it was not death or clear permanent disability that was involved. What may have happened had the nation needed immediate presidential action while President George Washington was undergoing surgery or suffering from influenza is not clear. Grover Cleveland never informed anyone publicly when he had surgery to remove a tumor in his mouth. And the stories of President Woodrow Wilson's wife, Edith, conspiring with the president's doctor to keep from others the true state of Wilson's health create prime examples of why there must be some method, other than the president's own admission and declaration of his inability to continue, even temporarily, to remove the president from office. 
Until the 25th Amendment, the informal agreements among presidents, their vice presidents, and cabinet members about what should happen in the event the president was incapacitated were left to control what were left in the control of the president himself. It was under such informal agreements that Vice President Nixon became acting president twice during President Eisenhower's administration. First, when Eisenhower suffered a heart attack in 1955, and then when Eisenhower underwent surgery in 1956. But Nixon never actually assumed the office of president. He merely became acting president until Eisenhower's recoveries. But it was, as previously mentioned, the assassination of John F. Kennedy that shed light on the fact that beyond the vice president, some clarification and reconsideration was needed as to who came next and what kinds of steps could, could be taken to remove an, an, a president who was unable to perform. The reason this historic event led to more discussion of the topic of succession stems from concerns at the time, until confirmation was obtained this was not the case, that Vice President Johnson may also have been injured and killed during this assassination attempt. Though the 25th Amendment is intended to address these concerns, many questions remain, and its fourth section is yet to be actually invoked. It is that last section that allows those other than the president to declare the president unfit to perform the duties of his office, effectively removing him through a process of potentially competing claims. First, that the president is unable to perform his duties, and then, if the president responds to the contrary, that he is able to continue. And the entire system is pushed to a sort of pseudo-trial or debate and vote on his competency. The nation has come close to invoking the fourth section of the 25th Amendment, but to date only the voluntary action of the president himself under Section 3 in the case of temporary inability has been used. In 1981, after President Ronald Reagan was shot and undergoing surgery, papers were drawn up in the event they were necessary to transfer power to then-Vice President George H.W. Bush, but Reagan recovered quickly and such action was not taken. Power was transferred under Section 3 to his vice president, however, in 1985, while President Reagan underwent surgery for colon cancer. And Vice President Dick Cheney was acting president both in 2002 and 2007 for a period of time, while then-President George W. Bush underwent medical procedures that required anesthesia. Other portions of the amendment have been triggered with the resignation of Spiro Agnew as vice president, such that President Nixon appointed Gerald Ford, who was confirmed by Congress as the new vice president. And when President Nixon resigned, Ford became president. And he then, again pursuant to the 25th Amendment, nominated Nelson Rockefeller to take his place as vice president. And during the term of Donald, President Donald Trump, there were rumblings related to claims he was unfit for office and about invoking Section 4 of the amendment, but such action was never taken. The 25th Amendment, though providing a process for it, rightfully does not make it easy to remove a duly elected president of the United States. But when should action be taken under this last section of the Succession Amendment? And are we reaching that point with the current administration? When considering whether a situation is sufficiently serious to invoke Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, it's important to, sti to distinguish between removal of the president from office for what that amendment terms inability to discharge the powers and duties of his office and impeachment. Impeachment is removal for wrongdoing. Removal on the, under the 25th Amendment, however, relates to mental or physical inability, or at least that is the intent for the language used and the debates that surrounded ratification of the amendment. The amendment is not intended to provide a mechanism for removal due to disagreements on policy, but it certainly could be the case that the decisions a president makes on policy indicate a mental deficiency or other issue that could trigger further investigation and consideration into whether the president is able to perform his duties. In a September 2021 opinion piece in the Washington Times, at least one person made the case for invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Biden. 
from disastrous policy decisions like the method of withdrawal from Afghanistan to simply bad economic policy, the Biden presidency is not doing well. But what are the incidents that are more and more often giving rise to discussions of the 25th Amendment? It's not bad policy choices, but public appearances and public statements that make the majority of the general public question whether President Biden even knows what's happening. Polling of Americans leads to the conclusion that most of us believe President Biden is suffering from serious mental decline. Polling also suggests that most Americans do not believe it's actually President Biden calling the shots in the White House, and that instead, his mental deficiencies are being used to manipulate and use him as a kind of pawn to enact policies someone or some group behind the scenes is pushing. The president, in press conferences and more formal speeches, rarely completes such appearances without wandering off, both mentally and physically, often confused and making little sense. It is true that Joe Biden has been prone to gaffes his entire political career, but when do those gaffes become something more? When do they become a sign that something is terribly wrong with the man whose decisions could have such a substantial impact on the entire world? Those are hard questions to answer. In addition, just as with impeachment, the idea of removing a sitting president is so fraught with politics that a decision to use one of those constitutional tools, if not clearly necessary, risks positioning future presidents for removal for less serious situations than would ever have been intended by those drafting and ratifying the Constitution and the 25th Amendment to it. The amendment itself makes it difficult to remove the president, and that is intentional. It does this by putting the power to invoke Section 4 in one group of people, then shifting power back to the president himself to counter the claims, and then requires a formal vote of Congress and a supermajority, should there be a counter by the president, to actually remove him. This process, though certainly imperfect, at least spreads the process between the political branches and in a way that the public will know who is responsible should the president be removed at a time when the voting public does not believe such removal is warranted. In other words, as with impeachment, there may be political price to pay should one party attempt to remove a president of the other party without real and just cause. As a starting point, the 25th Amendment is focused on when a president is unable to do anything or most things that are required of him in the office. It is not intended for when a president does bad things. So when some of the loudest cries for removal of President Biden by invoking the 25th Amendment surfaced following the debacle that was the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's more likely that impeachment was the proper tool. When, however, bad policy or bad decisions become so consistent or voluminous that concern arises it's not a difference of opinion or even mere incompetence at play, but true mental defect, then the 25th Amendment may in fact be the right avenue to consider removal of such a president. Some talk of the 25th Amendment was heard during the second of President Reagan's terms, as concerns about his age and possibly his mental acuity surfaced. And references to the 25th Amendment also circulated during the Trump presidency, when political foes attempted to characterize him as mentally deranged rather than just lacking in tact. But today's concerns about President Biden are different. The public is witnessing a very obvious decline, a continuous decline, a public decline in his ability at times even to understand where he is and why he is there. He's been filmed sleeping during international meetings and wandering off stage mid-press conference. His gaffes are no longer misspoken words, but are often entirely incoherent ramblings. At the very least, some confirmation from a medical professional that he's not suffering from some ailment that interferes with his mental capabilities may be necessary to ensure those who can that invoking the 25th Amendment is not becoming necessary. 
But there's another problem today. That problem is that no one appears to want what would come next. And that's the elevation of Vice President Kamala Harris to the office of president. Where President Biden's approval ratings are extremely low and continuing to fall. And many believe he is not mentally competent to do the job. Views of the American voter on Kamala Harris are no, no, less, dis, no less negative. Should that be relevant? It's hard to say. Where the president is so incapacitated that he cannot perform his duties, is there an obligation on the part of those designated the authority under the 25th Amendment to take action, even if the action and the end result may be more damaging to the nation? As always, thank you for listening. From our founding, it was understood that a president may die before fulfilling his term in office. It is no doubt also the case that our founders understood that something less than death could make a president unable to perform his duties. And despite the 25th Amendment's provisions for such a situation not having come until the mid-20th century, only a handful of examples actually exist of situations where a president was temporarily, potentially, unable to act, such that the vice president was deemed the acting president or maybe should have been. The 25th Amendment and the laws related to presidential succession now provide a relatively thorough process for addressing these situations. What these legal standards cannot do completely, however, is provide any bright-line test by which the nation can be certain when a particular president has become so incapacitated mentally that action should be taken to remove him from office permanently. President Biden's situation is certainly opening the door for more frank conversations about how much evidence is needed before a clearly mentally declining president is no longer permitted to serve as the leader of the free world. Next episode, I will discuss what happens now, post-pandemic. When a pandemic ends and freedom has suffered, what does the near future hold? What does the future hold in the long term? COVID is no longer the national and international emergency it once was. Even fearmongers at the New York Times are admitting that it is time to move on to a post-COVID world, where we learn to live with COVID, not to hide from it. But how has the world changed since the virus first spread beyond Wuhan? And will we ever return to a pre-COVID society? Until then, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus hyphen veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solas Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2022.